0: Good to see all of you. Why don't you open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 1, we're working our way through Luke's gospel, and we will get there in a little bit. The title of this morning's sermon is, I will remember their sins no more. I'll remember their sins no more. You can stay seated. You don't have to stand because I know it's warm in here, but we're going to read verses 17 through 24 in 2 Samuel 1 for the scripture reading prior to the sermon says David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son, and he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen? Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice." Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. Verse twenty-one: You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields, of offerings. For there, for there, the shield of the mighty was defiled. This is where Saul and Jonathan died. The, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty. The bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan beloved and lovely in life and in death they were not divided they were swifter than Eagles they were stronger than Lions you daughters of Israel weep over Saul who clothed you luxuriously in Scarlet who put ornaments of gold on your apparel father I thank you for the parable of the prodigal son that we've been looking at over these weeks I know I've been greatly encouraged by what we've studied so far and as we've uh, really this morning begin to look at the second individual in the account and, and perhaps the primary individual for us to focus on and uh that is the father the, the picture, beautiful picture type of, of you the first person of the triune nature of god i do pray lord that we could learn about you through this and be blessed greatly by your reception of the son and the application house for our lives lord i've just uh, incredibly enjoyed the time in my office studying all the wonderful truths you've been teaching me through this familiar uh, parable and i do pray lord for your glory that i could relay those truths to your people and that we could uh, for many people perhaps it would even be uh, very illuminating to see you in a different light as revealed through this account if people have never seen you this way before we ask that the way you you clearly desire to be viewed by us as evidenced by these verses would be the case for us in our lives Lord, give us open and receptive hearts I, I, it might be warm in here this morning, Lord, but help us to be focused on you, and then, and we pray that wouldn't even come to our, our, our minds, and I pray, Lord, use me as your vessel for your glory, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen, 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 you can keep your Bibles open to Second Samuel 1 for now, so, I appreciated Jake. Uh, preaching for me last sunday so that i could be at camp the week before without any um, sermon to worry about or i guess i should say i appreciated jake covering for me until the end of his sermon when he boasted about finishing a book of the bible before me (laughs) he might do that unless i don't let him preach again (laughs) so if you haven't listened to that sermon i'd encourage you to do so it's a great a great message on false teaching we're going to lay a foundation for this sermon by talking about the way we forgive and then contrasting that with the way god forgives and the reason we're doing this just to give you a little bit of an elevated view is because of the potential for us to project ourselves on others or in particular project ourselves on god and assume that the way we forgive or assume the way that we struggle to forgive might be the way that god struggles to forgive us so let's talk about the way we forgive forgiveness it's one of the most common topics that i deal with in marriage counseling as you can imagine when people come to my office there's usually an amount of uh, hurt or resentment or perhaps even bitterness and to help diffuse that hurt or resentment or bitterness i i talk to people about asking for forgiveness the right way and then talk to people about extending forgiveness the right way proverbs 15:1 says that a soft answer can turn away wrath and few things can be softer or turn away wrath better than an apology or request for forgiveness done the right way we've talked before about how to apologize and ask for forgiveness I won't spend too much time on it other than to offer two pieces of advice two words to avoid what it, what word is the destroyer of apologies the word but it is the destroyer of apologies whenever apologies contain the word but it is generally a disguise uh, an excuse that is trying to disguise itself as an apology right for example I'm sorry but if you hadn't done that or I'm sorry but this happened and caused me to to do that or I'm sorry but I never would have done this if not for the other word to avoid is the word you because it's often a manipulative way of shifting blame during an apology to the other person For example, I'm sorry you did this, or I'm sorry you were mad, or I'm sorry you were offended. So instead of apologizing the right way, it involves two steps. First saying, I'm sorry for, or I'm sorry I, and then listing the offense that we've committed, and then the second step is a request. It's asking the person to forgive us. So I'm sorry I, and then the second step, will you please forgive me? And that second step is really important because it engages the other person. It does three things. It reveals that we recognize we've done something wrong that requires forgiveness. By saying, will you please forgive me? It shows that we recognize we should be forgiven or that we've done something that requires forgiveness. Second, it shows we're not minimizing our actions. And third, it engages that other person or involves them and expects a response from them. Now, at this point in counseling, when I'm watching someone apologize genuinely or sincerely, I'll often actually jump in and interrupt after the apology before the other person has an opportunity to respond. And it's because I've seen enough times where someone will very quickly say, I forgive you, when they haven't really what? Yeah, forgiven the person. And so I think we're conditioned because... um, Forgiveness is so uh, essential to the gospel. I mean, that is its message, that we're forgiven for our sins. Uh, we're, we're preached to that we must forgive others because we, uh, the Lord has forgiven us. We even pray uh, that God would for, forgive us as we've forgiven others, implying that if we're unforgiving people, that we wouldn't be forgiven. That's not exactly what it means, but it, it's just so um, ingrained in us the need to forgive that will very quickly say we forgiven when we might not have really considered whether we're forgiven or or even understood what exactly is involved with forgiving someone and so I'll stop and I'll say now now before you say I forgive you let me tell you what you're obligated to do or what is entailed in you saying I forgive you and actually meaning it it means that you're not going to bring up the person's offense again So don't say i forgive you unless you're committed to not bringing up the person's offense again don't say i forgive you unless you're not going to hold the person's offense against him or her at least do your best not to and so if you plan on saying i forgive you but then still holding that offense against the person then you shouldn't say i forgive you yet you're also refusing to bring up the offense in the future or to think about it and so when you say i forgive you you're committing to doing your very best not to think about what that person has done, or you're committing to do your very best to not remember how that person has sinned against you, not dwell on it, not let it fester in your heart and create an amount of bitterness or resentment. There have been times that I've hurt Katie, and I've asked her to forgive me, and she's had to say, I'm not ready to forgive you yet. And I appreciate that because that tells me she's taking her forgiveness seriously. It's not something flippant for her and so when she tells me she forgives me it will be genuine or sincere and when someone says i'm not ready to forgive you yet they shouldn't be condemned or criticized for that instead they should be given the time that they need because it shows they're taking the forgiveness seriously to forgive the person and so if someone says i'm not ready to forgive you yet a good response would be we'll take the time that you need i will be waiting i will i will be praying if there's anything else i can do please let me know to help you along this along this path of forgiveness Forgiveness takes such immense effort that when we think of asking for forgiveness, Katie and I, we call it spiritual weightlifting. Few things in the Christian life are as difficult as uh, forgiving. And because it takes such an immense effort, because we know how difficult it is to forgive, when we seek forgiveness from people, we can wonder if they're genuinely going to forgive us. And here's the question, why is forgiveness so difficult for us? why is forgiveness so difficult for us and the answer is it's difficult because we cannot stop thinking about what people have done to us we are cloaked in flesh we have a sinful nature that frequently brings to mind those things that we can even be striving to forgive because we can't choose not to remember people's offenses we cannot say i will forgive you by remembering your sins no more we can try to do that But it is impossible for us to commit to someone or guarantee someone that we will choose never to think about their sins again or never to allow those sins to come to mind and this brings us to lesson one god doesn't forgive like us god doesn't forgive like us i wanted to take some time talking about our difficulty forgiving because it's important to not project that onto the Lord and assume that he has the same struggles or difficulties that we do Genesis 126 God said let us make man in our image after our likeness let them have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the heavens over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them very familiar verses very familiar teaching that we are created in god's image but what do we have the tendency to do with this truth flip it around what what is idolatry really idolatry is when we flip this around and we stop being made in god's image and we start making god or god god lowercase g or god's lowercase g in our image idolatry really is nothing more than creating a god or idol in our image and the way we make God into our image is we think of him like we think of ourselves we project ourselves on him and assume that he does things the way that we do things that he feels the way that we feel Um, we can even assume that when we have difficulty in certain things then God would have those same difficulties and for this morning's sermon I want to focus on one specific way that we tend to make God into our image and it is regarding forgiveness Because forgiveness is so difficult for us or because it takes such immense effort or is such an act of spiritual weightlifting for us to forgive, we can assume that it is equally difficult for God. We believe that he is going to forgive the way we forgive and have as much struggle with it or difficulty as we do. Listen to this quote from Ed Welch. He said, you may think that God is no better than you. In other words, you cannot imagine forgiving someone 70 times 7 so you can't believe that God would. If this is the way that you are thinking, then you are believing a lie. God is not like us. His forgiveness is not like ours. Don't use your own weakness as the standard by which you understand God's greatness. Just listen as he reveals himself in his word. If you got to watch the uh, vbs play go and briefly take your minds back to it for a moment there was a part when one of the uh, characters wonderfully played by clara chris was talking about the three omni words the three omni words do you guys remember one of those omni words huh omnipotent omnipotent means god is all powerful what's another omni word omnipresent. omnipresent which means that god is all present and what's the third one omniscient like omniscience or all knowledge, it means that God has all knowledge or knows everything. Do any of us fully understand these attributes of God? No, we absolutely don't. We cannot understand how God can be all-powerful. We don't understand how He can be everywhere at once, and we don't understand how He can know all things. And so because these attributes of God fascinate us, and I would say sometimes even frustrate us, as we'll talk about in a moment, we will come up with silly questions like can god create a rock that's so heavy he can't wet? and i see absolutely no spiritual value in entertaining that question or others like it but this past week i was listening to john piper recount this famous story from early in his christian life when he was not finding god's attributes fascinating he was finding them frustrating and my understanding is he has shared this story many times so perhaps some of you have heard it before he was listening to this professor that was talking about God's attributes and I quote John Piper said the professor was confronting me with these texts that were making me very angry and making me cry in the afternoon as I read my Bible that's when you know you're frustrated with God's attributes when reflecting on them causes you to cry so john finds this professor and he recounts i pulled my pen out of my pocket and i stood in front of the professor and after a few minutes of heated discussion i held my pen in front of his face and i dropped it on the floor and with far less respect than a 22 year old ought to have for a professor i said i dropped it i dropped it as though that would settle the issue as though there were no divine authority or power that might have somehow governed me dropping this pen and so John is making the point that he was struggling with God's omnipotence or his omniscience or perhaps both because God is omnipotent we come up with these questions to try to understand it like can he create a rock that's too too big to lift well there's no value in that question there are some questions about God's attributes that I do think are theological and valuable for us. And one of those is, can God forget things? Can God forget things? And do you see why in a discussion of the way God forgives, it would be so important to understand whether God forgets things, or even in a discussion about God's omnipotence or omniscience, to consider why God can forget things because in particular we're going to wonder if God can forget what our sins and it's a very important theological question because if God can forget things then how can he be what omniscient if God can't forget things then how can he say that he does what with us forgives us or how could we believe that he forgives us better than we can forgive people and i to be candid with you i do not want to be forgiven by god the way that i forgive people and i don't want to be forgiven by god as well as other people forgive me even the best forgiver i can think of nobody i don't know who that would be at this moment but even if you take the best forgiver in all of human history i don't want to be forgiven by god the way that person would forgive if God can't forget things then how can he say that he's not going to hold our sins against us if you take your mind back to the beginning of the sermon how can God say he forgives us any more or any better than that person in my office during marriage counseling who says they forgive their spouse but is not going to be able to forget the offenses that that person has committed in fact we can actually assume that it's worse with god because we kind of hope that in our our earthly human relationships that over time people might just what after we've wronged them forget you, you can almost hope that you know you've hurt someone you're you're genuinely sorry you ask for forgiveness and you can almost pray lord please help them to forget what i did over time but with god you know there's no potential for that So it's almost worse with god you can almost struggle even more with god's ability to forgive knowing that he's omniscient and can't forget things so how can god say that he forgives us when he doesn't forget our sins what does he do he chooses not to remember them he chooses not to remember our sins so to be clear in god's omnipotence he can choose what not to remember and this is a the theme in scripture isaiah 43 25 i will not remember your sins he didn't say what i will forget your sins jeremiah 31 34 i will forgive their iniquity and their sin i will remember no more hebrews eight twelve and hebrews 10 17 both say their sins and their lawless deeds i will remember no more nothing to imply that god is going to forget but he will choose not to remember those things that he has forgiven us for which is greatly encouraging to me because there are plenty of things I've done that I don't want God remembering amen bad theology is saying God forgets good theology is saying he chooses not to remember God also has the power to take our sins from us and separate them as far as we can imagine Micah 7:19. God will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea and that's actually a lot deeper than it sounds <laughs> because it was written to a people who had no concept of the depth of the ocean we have technology that allows us to search out you know the deepest darkest oceans but in the ancient world when this was written the ocean was viewed as being this very terrifying dark bottomless place where if something was sent there that it was lost forever And so there would really be no place that you would want your sins cast in terms of them not being remembered than to the depths of the ocean. And that's what God says that he will do with them. And then he will not, he'll choose not to remember them. Psalm 103 verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. What's further than east from west? I mean that creates imagery that cannot see your sins separated further from you than that because east and west just keep going out in opposite directions there's no limit it's boundless and so the idea is God takes your sins and he just sends them eternally far away from you last sermon we talked about David's sins of adultery and murder two of the worst sins and David confessed or he, he repents and then Nathan says to him second Samuel twelve thirteen, the Lord has put away your sin am I the only one that thinks that's worded oddly or not worded the way that I would expect Nathan says the Lord has put away your sin what would we expect Nathan to say God has forgiven your sin or perhaps if you're thinking theologically that this is the Old Testament under the Old Covenant God has covered your sin even because under the old covenant the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin it could only atone that's what that's what uh, atone means cover could only cover sins until christ came to see them forgiven and so we could expect nathan to say god has covered your sin or atoned for your sin but by saying that god has put away david's sin it furthers this imagery that god takes it and he sends it to the bottom of the ocean or he sends it as far as the east is from the West that is the imagery that God wants us having with our sin because he has chosen not to remember it I want to give you two of my favorite biblical examples or illustrations of God's forgiveness hopefully you're still in 2nd Samuel 1. let me give you the context for these verses David has just received the news that Saul has died now I want you to understand this the way that we would expect David to understand this And so when david gets the news that saul has died he's receiving the news that the man who has single-handedly been ruining the nation that he is anointed to rule over is dead david has also just received the news that the man who has been trying to do what with him for years is dead murder him he's received the news that the man who gave him a wife and then took that wife away drove him away from his family into exiles for 10 to 15 years caused david to lose some of the best years of his life those wonderful formative years where his his strength would have been at its height is dead he's received the news that the man perhaps most significantly in david's mind that's has stood for 10 to 15 years between david and the throne is dead david's anointed maybe 15 years ago there's one obstacle between him sitting on that throne he's anointed for and that's saul and that obstacle is now removed so what do you expect from david you know fist in the air rejoicing celebrating you almost can't imagine a more joyful moment for david with that in mind look at verse 17. david lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan so you can already tell that something is strange can't you we understand David lamenting over his best friend Jonathan's death but it also says that he lamented over Saul's death and it gets even stranger verse 18. David said that this lamentation or lament should be taught to the people of Judah behold it is written in the book of Jasher now David wrote lots of songs he wrote many of the Psalms as far as I know this is the only psalm or song or lament that David wrote that we have record of it being instructed by him for others to learn or sing so that's how significant this was to him that he commands the nation to learn it verse 19 your glory O Israel is slain on your high places oh how the mighty have fallen when he says, Your glory, O Israel, he's not talking about God here. I'm sure he would say that God is the glory of Israel. But right here, when he says, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high place, he's talking about Saul and Jonathan. And notice it says mighty, plural. He's not just talking about Jonathan being mighty, he's talking about Saul being mighty. It's repeated three times in verses 19, 25, and 27 in verse 20 he says "Tell it not in gath this philistine city publish anon on the streets of ashkelon another philistine city Lest the daughters of the philistines rejoice lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult israel's like enemy number one to the philistines and david knows that as soon as the news reaches them that saul has been killed there's going to be rejoicing and celebrating in the streets basically david knows that the philistines are going to respond the way we would expect david to respond and he says don't let the re- news reach them so that they don't celebrate over Saul's death this is not a time for rejoicing verse 21 you mountains of Gilboa let there be no dew or rain upon you nor fields of offerings for there the shield of the mighty was defiled the shield of Saul not anointed with oil so this is where Saul and Jonathan died on this mountain or mountains of Gilboa and so he curses this land he said let there not be rain let nothing grow there in response to that being the location where Saul and Jonathan have died. Verse 22: From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, the sword of Saul returned not empty, praising Saul's prowess in battle. Verse 23: Saul and Jonathan noticed this. Beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You read this correctly david did not just say that jonathan was beloved and lovely in life he said that saul was as well verse 24 you daughters of israel weep over saul the exact opposite of what we'd expect who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet who put ornaments of gold on your apparel so he tells the women of israel to weep over saul because of how good he had been with them and i want to ask you this despite how sinful Saul had been where is there any mention of any of Saul's sins in these verses You read him a thousand times and you will never see one hint of ridicule or criticism or remembrance of Saul's sins and this brings us to lesson two God says I will remember their sins no more part one like David forgave Saul lesson two God says I'll remember their sins no more part one like David forgave Saul now I'll be honest with you I read these verses and I'm like who is the other person David is talking about besides Jonathan he cannot be talking about King Saul there must be some other Saul in Scripture that David is singing about here did God give him like a New Testament vision he's able to look centuries ahead and see Saul of Tarsus I mean is that is that what's going on here that the David has some understanding of Saul's conversion to Paul and that's you know who he's singing about because he cannot be talking about the man who has spent the last number of years trying to murder David ruin his life and almost single-handedly destroy the nation notice in verse 17 and 23 it says saul and jonathan and repeats that throughout saul and jonathan saul and jonathan or jonathan and saul jonathan and saul writing about them almost identically even though they could not have been more polarizing forces in david's life if you think about it there are not two individuals who could have had more polarizing results in David's life one trying to murder David and the other trying to save David they could not have been more opposites yet David was able to write about Saul and Jonathan almost identically and how can that be how can that be he chose not to remember Saul's sins this is one of those places that reveals why or how David could be the man what after God's own heart you can wonder especially when you consider David's adultery and murder how he could be called the man nobody else shares that title after God's own heart and you're looking at it few places in all of Samuels first and second Samuel or maybe no places are going to rival the way in which David's heart in this moment resembles God's heart because David seemed able to forgive like God forgives no mention of any of Saul's sins David chose not to remember them now go ahead and turn to Luke 15 I'll give you an analogy that maybe you've heard before while you turn there every time we hurt someone it's like we're going to a fence and we're taking out a nail and we're hammering that nail into the fence and then when we ask for forgiveness and someone tells us they forgives us forgive us they genuinely forgive us they're taking the nail out of the fence but what there's still the hole there right And there's some truth to that people can and the idea is people can forgive but the relationship might not be the same i mean i believe there's people i've hurt or there's people i've mistreated and i've been sorry and i've asked for forgiveness and i don't think my relationship has been restored i can think of people that i've i've wronged and genuinely regretted it later or been convicted went requested forgiveness and and felt like my relationship the whole still remained in the fence even if the even if they were able to forgive me now take your minds back to the beginning of the sermon because we make god into our image we assume that when we repent and ask for forgiveness that those holes are going to remain in the fence because the holes remain in our fence we assume the holes are going to remain in god's fence so even if he forgives us through christ there's still all those holes that we've made and our relationship can't be the same with him we believe God's forgiven us, but we suspect that He's still somewhat what? Mad? Disappointed? Angry? Hostile? Frustrated? And interestingly, who thought this? The son did. That's what the prodigal son thought about his father. Look in verse 18 he says i will arise i will go to my father and i will say to him father i have sinned against heaven and before you i am no longer worthy to be called your son treat me as one of your hired servants in other words i am sorry for what i have done i'm coming back to confess i am repentant but i know these holes are remaining in the fence and I know that our relationship has changed and I know that you must treat me differently now I know that I can't be a son again but I would rather come back and just be a servant even if I can't be a son but I know what I've done I know I recognize the damage that I've caused by betraying you by living in rebellion against you by squandering the inheritance engaging in all of this immorality and so he says things are never going to be the same I am no longer worthy to be called your son do you see the contrast I was a son I know that I was one before but because of what I've done things can't be the same I'm not worthy any longer to be your son you're going to hold this against me and I accept that as bad as I've been I accept that you will hold this against me and that I will spend my life being a servant or being a slave and understand the background to this parable jesus preached this parable because he knew that this is the thinking of god the father in his day jesus preached that the prodigal son thought this because he knew that the people in his day thought this and who else thinks this The people in our day you better approach god I mean the way the prodigal son thinks captures the thinking of many people not just in Jesus's day but in our day you had better approach God super cautiously you better have every word figured out you better know exactly what you're going to say when you go to him and if you sin badly enough you are no longer worthy to be called God's child you're gonna be like the prodigal son And even if you repent and you turn back, you're going to spend the rest of your life being little more than a slave. Jesus preached this parable to destroy that view of God in his day. And we can read it and have that view of God destroyed in our day now I hesitate to say this because I don't want you to think more of me as a as a school teacher than I actually was I had plenty of plenty of uh, mistakes and failures but after I became a Christian I recognized I was pretty much the only Christian some of these students would know and do you know when I had the greatest opportunity to demonstrate the gospel to my students When they came back from suspension. Can you see why? Picture this there's a student that's suspended. Which is about as, I mean, the, that's just a step above expelled. <laughs> you know, the, the only thing that could be worse is you get expelled. And, and schools don't want to suspend students because that means loss of money. I'm not joking, but it's true. It's, schools are notorious for sending students to the principal's office and the students get sent back and nothing happened and teachers are furious because they're like, why didn't you do anything? Why didn't you suspend them? And schools don't want to lose money. So they send the students back to the classroom. My point is, for a student to get suspended, they must have been terrible. And so when students come back after being suspended, how do they come back feeling? They're concerned. They're worried. They wonder if their relationship with you as their teacher is ever going to be the same. And I don't know that I would do it now because the way things have changed in schools, but I was told my students, I said, hey, at the end of the day, you can have one of the three H's. You can have a, a, a high five, a handshake, or a hug. And you always start the school year and there's a bunch of kids that are too cool for a hug and they're just giving you high fives or handshakes. And by the end of the year, most of those students are hugging you. So you become this very dear person in their life. I mean, parents come in and talk to you and tell you that their students come home and talk about you to them at the dinner table. So you really want to be this good representation of Christ to them. And you know you can't preach the gospel super, super uh, verbally because you'd be removed as a public school teacher. But when students came back, from suspension I'll be honest there was little that I loved more than that moment that I could walk out on the ramp and I could see that child coming and I could put my arms around him and I could say I'm so happy to see you I am so glad you're back I really missed you when you were gone and you can really see this load that is lifted off these students because they were convinced that you were still going to be mad at them and there are, there, are parent, there are teachers that meet students like that. There are teachers and it's like, I got to get to the front door and I better see that kid before he walks in. I'm going to meet him there and I'm going to put my finger in his face and I'm going to say, are you glad to be back? Did you learn your lesson? You better have shaped up if you don't want to get sent home again just berating these children as though they haven't learned anything. And so I'd grab that kid and hold him, assuming they're comfortable with that, and say, I am so glad to see you. So glad to have you back in the classroom with me for no other reason than i see that's how god the father acts toward us look at verse 20. he arose he came to his father but while he was still a long way off his father saw him he felt compassion he ran he embraced him he kissed him And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said, Did you learn your lesson? Are you really that sorry? Did you suffer enough? That you've come back now and you're a different person you're saying you're sorry but if you really changed, do you really understand how bad you've been and all the damage you've caused and how you've ruined my reputation and i can't even show my face around town and we had a funeral for you and told everyone you were dead because of how wicked you've been that's what you would expect there's nothing like that but the father said bring quickly the best robe put it on him put a ring on his hand shoes on his feet bring the fatted calf kill it let us eat and celebrate and this brings us to part two of lesson two god says i will remember their sins no more part two like the father forgave the prodigal son like the father forgave the prodigal son now i was tempted to try to pull ahead of jake here And consider this having covered these verses just by reading them to you there but we wouldn't even remotely do justice to them so next week we will begin digging into these verses but for now i just want you to notice that the prodigal son was completely wrong in his view of his father's forgiveness he could not have been more wrong about his father's forgiveness and if we project ourselves on God and assume that he forgives like us then we're going to be like the prodigal son and we're going to assume that God would never forgive us like the father in this parable forgave his son it looks like the son has done nothing wrong in other words why am i why did i want to go through that earlier in the sermon because when i read that god chooses not to remember our sins anymore i don't know if there is a better visual representation of what that looks like than the way the father receives his son here. because this is clearly a father that has done what he has chosen not to remember his son's sins any longer you could almost be bothered that the father didn't say anything to the son about what he did you could almost be bothered that instead it looks like the father rewards him I mean we know at least someone was upset about that right who was upset about it the other son the father gives him the best robe puts the ring on his hand shoes on his feet kills the fatter calf he has this huge celebration it doesn't look like the son came back from a season of rebellious immorality it looks like he's coming back from war after serving his country you know how soldiers come back from war and what happens the family just celebrates they can't wait to see them he looks like the son that's coming home from college after graduating and everyone's really excited to see him or he looks like the son that would come home after just inventing something that benefits mankind he doesn't look like the son who's coming home after a season of rebelliousness and immorality so you could read this and think that there must be some third son (laughs) we cannot be reading about the son that was in the earlier verses there must be a third son that we've missed and that's who the father has him mixed up with he's thinking about his good son that he misses He's thinking about the good son who's been obedient all these years because there's no way that any reasonable rational father would act this way toward a son coming home after complete rebellion and immorality but we read this because god does not forgive like me or you he does not forgive like us when god forgives the holes are removed because god says what I choose not to remember their sins any longer. Thomas Adams said, Sins are so remitted, it is as if they had never been committed. If you have ever struggled with God's forgiveness for your sins, Uh, whether those holes in the fence are truly removed i would encourage you to go back and read these verses and look at the father's reception of his son so you can be encouraged by the way the father wants to forgive you if you have any questions about this sermon or i can pray for you in any way i'll be up right after service and i'd consider it a privilege to speak with you father we thank you for your forgiveness we thank you for this incredible example of what it looks like when you choose not to remember our sins any longer and i don't know who might struggle with whether you've forgiven them if there'd be people uh, in this congregation listening to my voice at this time lord people who wonder if their relationship with you could ever be the same if they're no longer worthy to be called your son or daughter and would expect that you'd only make them a servant or slave i pray lord they can be encouraged by these truths that your word would speak to them and show them your heart and the way that you desire to receive us like you did your son